Bibles to the book of Philippians. We'll be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ, Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Let's pray. Father, we're here because we want to hear your word. We recognize that it is by your word that we are strengthened and built up in Christ. For we realize that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we pray that you would feed our souls through your truth and give me assistance to make your word clear that we might rightly understand it and therefore know how we should apply it to our lives. We ask this on behalf of Christ. In His name, Amen. One of the jobs that I had when I was um, just had just graduated from college was I worked at a children's shelter, and we cared for abused or abandoned children um, that the Department of Social Services would uh, bring to us. And I was the night shift manager and in charge of intaking children. And we got a call for a two-year-old, and we could handle kids from two to twelve. And um, so I said, yeah, well, we'd love to, to have the child and care for it however long you need us to. But unfortunately, uh, what happened is the two-year-old they brought in uh, suffered from severe um, fetal alcohol syndrome and was actually only functioning at a six-month level. And unfortunately, we didn't have the resources to care for somebody that was at that developmental, you know, re- had that developmental retardation. And so uh, we, we were not able to care for it very long and had to return it to the Department of Social Services and so they could find somebody else to care for it. And the problem there essentially was that although that child was, of course, two years old and on paper I could care for it, I failed to um, be able to recognize its true maturity level. I failed in my assessment of this child's maturity level. Which brings up this question, spiritually speaking, how would you assess your spiritual maturity level? And I think to really answer that question, we need to begin by asking, well, what is the standard? What is the standard of spiritual maturity? What does a mature person look like? Well, apparently in the church of Philippi, there were a number of people who claimed that they were spiritually mature, that they had arrived at spiritual maturity. And it appears that these were the same ones who are suggesting 
in, at the, in Paul addresses them in the beginning of chapter 3, they were suggesting that one needed to get circumcised, like them apparently, if they wanted to become truly spiritually mature. And they probably had a decent, decently long list of spiritual attainments that they could point back to and, see, and say, see, look at all the things that we've accomplished so far. And that's probably why Paul listed his spiritual attainments kind of to contrast with them. Remember, he says, if anybody could boast in their flesh in what they've achieved, I more so. And that's why, again, Paul at the end of that list says, and I count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. And so these teachers were pressing the Philippians to put their confidence in their attainments, their spiritual acts, so to speak, rather than what Christ had already accomplished for them. And it seems that part of their teaching was this idea that since they had arrived at this mature state, spiritually, they could therefore then just coast. Because they had arrived. And now they could just kind of go into spiritual retirement and just enjoy life. Today we find ourselves in chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul is continuing his warning against these false teachers that he began at the beginning of the chapter. Well, at the same time, as he continues his warning, he's actually, if you think about it, giving a commentary on what he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. This well-known verse when he says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Really, everything he's saying here in chapter 3 is explaining what he means by that. The reason I live is so that I can become like Christ on account of what Christ has done for me. His whole life is aimed at one thing, becoming Christ-like. And in this section, Paul gives both a personal testimony to how he currently lives, and then he turns and gives an exhortation to the Philippians and says, now you follow likewise with me. You think the same way I think. So let's look at, first of all, his vigorous pursuit, beginning in verse 12. He says, Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And we need to begin by noting the key word in this section. In both the ESV as well as the New American Standard, it's the word translated perfect. The Greek word for it is teleo, where we get the word teleological for like the teleological argument for God or even telescope. It's the word that means end or uh, uh, the, 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 the end for which we are seeking to attain, the goal. It could be translated fully accomplished or finished. Notice how Paul actually translates it in these, and James and, and, and the author of Hebrews in these various passages. He says in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It's the word complete there. Same word. Hebrews 6.1 Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Ephesians 4.13 Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then James, of course, says, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect 
and complete, lacking in nothing. So it can be translated these various ways. I think the best word that kind of captures all of these ideas is the word maturity. Because it means to be fully grown or, or ripe, ready, completed, no growth necessary. So a child, when he's fully grown, is considered a mature adult. They don't grow anymore, physically speaking. A Christian, however, doesn't arrive at spiritual maturity until he actually becomes like Christ. And when, of course, will that happen? Well, Paul had just mentioned that in verse 11, when he attains to the resurrection of the dead. That's when he will fully be like Christ. But it's this Christ-likeness that he continues to pursue. And it's this Christ-likeness that he desires to want to obtain. It's the one thing he presses on towards. Notice that word. Verse 12, I press on. I press on. It's actually the same word he uses in 3.6, the beginning of the chapter, the word that's translated persecute there. It means to, to chase after something, to, to want to take hold of something. It means to quickly and energetically move towards some objective. It could mean to to hasten, to hurry, to press forward. It's, it's a vigorous pursuit to lay hold of his ultimate goal. And the root of the word lay hold of is the word that he used earlier, obtained. Except it just has this prefix. So it's obtained and then has a prefix, a Greek prefix that amplifies the word of it. And that's why it's translated to lay hold of versus obtained. And I think it's best translated as to seize or to conquer because it has this military objective in it as it's used in other parts of Scripture and in Greek texts. It conveys acquiring something by means of a significant effort. So as I, I, it's this idea of he's, he's wanting to win a prize. He wants to win the race. He doesn't just want a participation trophy. I mean, we hear this all the time in America, because we're a very athletic culture, that winning is everything. I mean, that's why we play sports, unless, you know, it's just the developmental league or something, and the, the aim is just to develop the player but typically, even in Little League, you'll have coaches say, winning is everything. That's why we're doing it. If we're not trying to win, why play? And think of all the effort and resources Olympic or professional athletes exert in order just to win a transitory trophy. Because to them, their goal is to win. And this is the same effort that Paul exerts in wanting to be Christ-like. He is not playing to participate. He wants to win. He wants to win. It's, and it's, it's not that he's in competition with other believers. He's in competition against himself. And, and the effort is the effort exerted like one who wants to win. Versus just participate. And what this shows us is that Christianity is not passive. Now, many well-meaning Christians believe that after, because they've come to faith in Christ, because they've been saved, they no longer need to exert any effort in their faith. In fact, they'd even go as far as to say, for one to want to pursue holiness 
or righteousness is actually demonstrates a lack of faith and is uh, legalistic and even self-righteous. Suggests that they don't really trust Christ for their salvation. But is that true, Paul, here? When Paul says he presses on towards this goal, is it because he doubts that he's saved? Is it because he, he doubts that he has been given the righteousness of Christ? Hardly. That's the foundation for why he does it. He's vigorously pursuing Christ's likeness because his confidence is not in the flesh. It's because his confidence is in Christ. He says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He tells us the reason he presses on is because he was laid hold of by Christ. He's been conquered by Christ already. He's been seized by Christ. He belongs to Christ. And it's because he belongs to Christ, that's why he pursues Christ's likeness. This has nothing to do with doubting his salvation. It's because he's confident in his salvation. That he, he exerts all his energy towards becoming like Christ. He wants to see the work that Christ began in him fully completed. Remember Philippians 1.6, the assurance he gives the believer, the work that Christ began in you, he will complete. It's because of his confidence in Christ's work that compels him to vigorously pursue Christian maturity. So his conversion was not this cage to hold him back, but a catapult into the pursuit of holiness. The resistible grace of Christ overcoming Paul's rebellion and saving him from sin did not make Paul passive. It made him powerful. With all his might, he pursues Christ's likeness. With the same vigor that he once tried to destroy Christianity. Remember that word um, to press on, it's the same word persecute. He once vigorously persecuted, sought to conquer Christians, but then Christ conquered him on the Damascus road. And since Christ had conquered him, he has made it his life objective to be like his Savior. He directs all his energy towards becoming like him. And he pursues that aim as one who wants to win. And as he says in verse 13, not... Brethren, I do not regard myself as having attained it or having laid hold of it yet. See, Paul doesn't think that he has arrived. This shows that not only what he presses on towards, what he's aiming at, but even how he thinks. He thinks a certain way. And I say think because of the word he uses, translated regard. It means to think in such a way as to come to a conclusion, come to a conviction. It's the word logizomai, from where we get the word logic. And logic means the rules for thinking. It's the mental process, the framework for how we come to convictions. And here it refers to a settled conviction in his mind. Note also that there's this slight pause at the beginning of the verse. His brethren. What he's doing, he's calling for their attention because he's going to give 
He, he wants to make sure that they, they're listening to what he's saying. It's like speaking to a distracted child. He wants them to understand something important. He does not believe that he has arrived. Even Paul, the apostle, trained and sent out by Christ, does not believe that he has arrived spiritually. And again, he needs to get their attention because some people were saying that they had become spiritually mature. And apparently they were telling people that to become spiritually mature, you needed to become like them. You needed to follow their example. You needed to get circumcised or follow certain laws. Follow their rules. And if you followed their rules, then you could become mature like them. And so to counter this spiritual pride... Paul calls for their attention and emphatically declares that he would never make such a boast as having said he has arrived spiritually. So if you were to ask the Apostle Paul if he thought of himself as a mature Christian, he would probably counter and say, do I look like I have a glorified body? Do I look like I don't sin anymore? Do I look like Christ? That would be his response. No, obviously. His focus is not on what he's done so far, even what he's doing for Christ. It's the end. He wants to be like Christ. He's not looking back. He's looking forward completely. So let me try an illustration to, to capture this idea. Imagine me praising my one-year-old, or he's almost one, he's ten months, Jeremiah, because he's learning to feed himself. And as parents do, I might say something like, Jeremiah, look, look how big you are. You are a big boy. But if he were to ably and honestly assess himself at that point, he would probably think, what is dad talking about? I'm nothing like my brothers. Look at all the things they can do. Look at how nicely they can eat when they choose to. Look at, look at how they can run. Look at how they play. They can dribble basketball. They can throw it. I'm nothing like a big boy. That's just flattery, Dad. But even more than that, Dad, I'm nothing like you. I can't do half the things that you do. I want to be able to do what you do. I want to be fully grown. This is Paul's idea. He's not looking back. He recognizes... It's when, he, when he compares himself to what he wants to be, he's, he's hardly gone anywhere. Because Paul recognizes he hasn't yet arrived at Christ's likeness, this is his ultimate aim. And it affects the way he lives. The way he thinks affects the way he lives. And that's why he says, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. This is the thinking leading to the doing. And notice what Paul says. He does one thing. It's interesting that there's actually in the Greek no verb supplied here. The verb is actually found in verse 14. I press on. Which the point is that he's being emphatic. Drawing their attention. It's like he's just saying one thing. I'm not fully mature. One thing. One thing. 
And I think this should be really helpful to us. Because we live in an age that assumes that the more we do, the better we are. The more we accomplish, the more significant we are. The more mature we are. The more things we do, the better. But we realize that actually the more things we do, the fewer things we do well. And so if a wise person would want to ask, well, what should I be doing? What should I do with all my resources, with all my time? What is the one thing that a Christian should do? Because there is, there is an, nearly an infinite amount of things we could be doing with our lives. What is the one thing we should do as a Christian? This is, this is really helpful for us. Because we should all be doing this one thing. The one thing he does is to press on towards Christ-likeness. And he does this by forgetting what's behind him and then reaching forward to what lies ahead of him. And when he says forgetting, he's not saying that he actually can't recall the things that he's done. What he's saying is, unlike the Judaizers... His spiritual confidence is not in what he has accomplished. It's not in what he's done already. So forgetting entails that list of spiritual attainments that he's already listed. The things that he considers loss and even rubbish. Paul is so focused on attaining his goal, he realized that everything that he's accomplished in the past, it just, it means nothing. That's what, it, it less... Less than nothing. It's rubbish. He only cares about how far he still has to go. So he keeps reaching forward. The word actually means to stretch out like a runner who's about to cross a finish line. It, 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 it demonstrates this great exertion, this final effort. So rather than coasting, it's like he's speeding up, exerting more energy as he moves forward, as he gets closer He's not coasting. He's not letting off the gas. He is flooring it, pedal to the metal, until he reaches his goal. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. He's focused on the goal. Another, another way to, to picture this is just last year, a few months ago, the Houston Astros won the World Series. They, they reached their goal. They made their accomplishment. And yet, are they resting now? Are they taking the year off? Well, hardly. They're trying to catch the Red Sox. (laughs) They're forgetting what lies behind. They won the pennant. And all of a sudden, it's way behind them. They're reaching forward to what lies ahead. And that's true of every team. You just that's that's part of our nature. We know that we just have to keep moving on to the next goal ahead of us. But for Christians, there's one goal and we will not reach that goal until we become truly Christ like with our resurrected bodies. Now, recognize how in this brief verse, Paul, Paul brilliantly demolishes the parallel heresies of both legalism and antinomianism. And I'll explain what both those mean. Legalism is the belief that salvation and spiritual growth are accomplished by 
us doing certain things. That we are saved by what we do. And we grow spiritually because of what we do. It denies that the power of Christ alone is what saves us and what sanctifies us. That's legalism. Antinomianism is the belief that because it is the power of Christ alone that saves and sanctifies us, that therefore we don't need to pursue holiness anymore at all. The work's already done. There's nothing left to do. We can coast. It denies the fact that the work of Christ in a person's life is demonstrated in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. So, notice this. Paul dismisses legalism when he says, I forget what lies behind. It's not about what I've done, but where I'm going. And he dismisses antinomianism when he says, I press on. I press on. So he's forgetting what he's done because it really doesn't matter, spiritually speaking. But rather, what Christ has done in him and through him. And he dismisses antinomianism because he doesn't want them to put their confidence in their passivity. A genuine believer neither puts confidence of salvation in what they do, nor in embracing passivity. True conversion compels one towards Christ-likeness. Confidence is in what Christ has done, which therefore compels them to want to become like Christ. And this is what Paul speaks to next. Before getting there, I just want to draw just the, the reality that both of these tendencies are, are, are a ditch that we can fall into, especially in our church. You know, like Martin Luther once said, you know, these are the tendencies, like a, like a drunk peasant, we go one side or the other side. You can hardly keep us in the middle. We, all of us tend to go one way or another. But just think about why you came to church today. Did you come to church today out of discipline, out of routine? Because it's, it's what I do. I'm a Christian. I go to church. Or was it because you recognized your immaturity and you long to learn? You, you recognize that you need to grow. See, it's really easy for us to think that we don't need to forget how much the reason we come to church is to grow. We need the word. We need to be convicted. We need to be challenged. We need to press on towards Christ likeness because the world out there is not helping that. It's trying to tear us down and put hindrances in our way. We come to church. We read the word. We pray because we recognize we need to grow. And for the person who says, well, I don't I don't need to grow. Well, that assumes that you've arrived. I mean, think of the pride there. And yet, how easy is it for us to approach our quiet times and just read? That asks the question, how do I need to become more like Christ? Or, again, the other side, to approach our devotions in the morning. I'm going to pray because that's what a Christian does. And I know I need to pray. And I'm going to read my Bible because I need to do it. And that's... And I know I'm going to have a good day because I did my spiritual duty. And I went to church this week. I'm confident things are going to go well. See how easy it is to fall into these sentences. Again, passivity or legalism. 
They're parallel heresies. So Paul says, I keep pressing on. I make it my aim to pursue Christ-likeness. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now notice, the first thing this tells us is that there is a goal to the Christian life. There is something we're moving forward to. There's an aim. And it tells us that the goal is ahead of us, it's not behind us. It shows us that the goal for Christians is not coming to Christ. I mean, how, how often we can think like this. That the real aim is just getting people saved. And that's it. Or the real aim is just for us to get saved. And then that's it. That's not the goal. That's just the beginning. The aim is to become like Christ. Just like entering a race. Coming to Christ is merely entering the race. You're signed up. The pursuit of Christ-likeness is the race. The end, though, isn't until the finish line. So coming to Christ is just the first step. And we recognize that it's, it is a big deal to be invited to um, honor your country by representing them in the Olympics. That's a big deal to march in the opening day ceremonies. Everybody cheering. But nobody is fooled into thinking that's what this is all about. That's just the entrance. That's just the beginning. It's the beginning of the competition. The beginning of the race. The point is to run. The point is to get into the race and eventually to hopefully receive a medal, to win the prize. Paul knows that the goal of his life is to cross the finish line, to reach the goal. And it's at that point that he will then receive his prize. It's interesting. Paul uses the same word prize in 1 Corinthians 9.24 when he writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now, don't, don't get distracted and think that his point is win. That's not his point. His point is run in such a way that you would win. Run like a winner. Are you running the Christian life like a winner? Or are you strolling and just enjoying the weather? Run in such a way that you may win. And again, this isn't a suggestion, it's a command. He's running in order to win. And again, it's not a competition with other believers, but it is, it is a fight against sin. It is a fight against the flesh and the temptations of the devil. He's running to win against, in a sense, himself with vigor and running to finish endurance. It conve- it's both ideas. He's running with all his might, but it's a long race. He's running that he might finish the race as well. And both ideas are captured in this metaphor. Running hard and running to the finish line. Now notice that the prize that Paul desires and pursues is the upward call. The upward call of God. What is he referring to here? What is this upward call? The word klesis 
translated call, frequently refers to God's initial and effective call to salvation through the gospel. So a couple of passages where it's used. Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these he justified, he glorified. You see how those two ideas, Paul, Paul says, God has called us. And even he's called us to be conformed to the image of his son there. First Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. You were called to take hold of eternal life. You were called for this purpose. God has called you to do this thing. And this was the Paul, the call Paul received at salvation and that continues to compel him on until he finishes. So to understand this idea of the call compelling him, think of, bear with me with a medieval illustration. Think of a medieval knight. And he receives a message from a beautiful princess who's in distress. In this message, she says, I've been captured by an evil prince. He's holding me captive and guarding me with a ferocious dragon. And so she writes and says, if to this night, if you will come to me and rescue me, I will be yours forever. And then we will live happily ever after. So when the knight receives this summons, does he just go show it to all his friends and say, look it, this, this princess wants to marry me. That's great. And then just sit and wait for that special day to arrive? If he did so, he'd be a knucklehead. Because that's not what he was called to do. He's called to, cat, to, to, to seize her, to capture her, to free her from slavery. He leaves immediately and presses on until he can finish the quest. The summons he received at the beginning is what compels him and calls him to keep pressing on until he receives the prize. The princess in this illustration. And he's going to press on until he gets there. Paul was called to eternal life. And that is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And having received this call, he presses on until it's fully realized. So after informing the Philippians of what he pursues, how he thinks, and then what he does, and what he's aiming at, he then directs his attention towards them. How we should think. So how should we think? He says in verse 15, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. So Paul addresses those who are perfect. Again, and this is the word that he used earlier uh, that, that I think is best translated mature. But he uses the word a bit differently this go around, which signals the fact that he's making a point to counter the false teachers in Philippi. So he acknowledges that well, there is such a thing as a mature Christian, but just relatively speaking. There are, there are some Christians that are further along the path than other Christians. Clearly, obviously. That we should look to as an example and follow after them as they follow Christ. But they're not mature in the sense that they've arrived, like some of these false teachers were suggesting. And 
And in fact, the indicator the person is more mature is that they're closer to the prize. They really are more Christ-like. And he says that truly mature Christians will think in this way. And I say the, think because of the word in verse 15 that is translated attitude. It's the, it's the Greek word phreneo. We saw it in chapter 2 and Paul said, have this mind which was yours in Christ Jesus or have this attitude which was yours in Christ Jesus. And then it describes how Christ allowed himself to um, be stripped of his glory in order to save us. He humbled himself. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think this way. Have this mindset. So Paul says that spiritually mature Christians will be particularly marked by thinking the same way that Paul thinks about himself. Which is what? You haven't arrived. The truly spiritually mature Christian will be characterized by recognizing I'm not there yet. In fact, wow, do I have a long way to go. They're not going to be looking back and saying, hey, check out my resume. You know, if you challenge them, they're not going to respond by saying, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? They'd be like, wow, you're right, brother. I do have, I do have to grow in that. In fact, more, as you talk to mature believers, you read biographies of mature believers, the more they grow in the faith, the more dependent, the more time in prayer, the more humble they become. And the more they confess their weaknesses and their struggles, and the less defensive they get. Because they recognize it's true. I have far more to grow in. And Paul then warns those who don't have this sort of mindset. It's interesting that he says, and God will reveal this also to you. For those of you who don't think this way, God will show you how mature you actually are. So if you think you're spiritually mature, you think you can coast, God will show you you're not as strong as you think you are. His point is, there's a sense of warning here. If you think you've arrived spiritually, brace yourself because God's going to teach you a lesson. You might say in our vernacular, I hope you're hungry because you're about to get dished some humble pie. Truly mature Christians are those who have the mindset they're not as mature as they should be. And of course, thinking this way is going to affect the way they live. So they need to recognize they're not, they haven't arrived, they have to grow more. But then that compels the way they live. Verse 16. However, let us keep living by the same standard that we have attained. Paul's simple point here is that mature Christians, any Christian, needs to keep growing. So you've, you've grown in these areas. You don't like, swear like a sailor anymore. You stop taking drugs. You stop drinking. You stop looking at pornography. Great. Keep those things, but keep going. Keep living to that good standard that you've attained, but keep growing towards Christ's likeness because, brother and sister, you've got a long way to go. And if you're not certain about that, just ask your parents or ask your spouse or even your children. affects the way we live we shouldn't digress into disobedience and fleshly living 
And given what Paul says of you verses later, it's apparently that that's what these false teachers were doing. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. Just a few verses later, he says, For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. You see the trajectory where these false teachers are going? Yeah, they, they got circumcised, but then where did their life end up? You know, it's, it, it doesn't take a person long to recognize when, a, when you run into truly legalistic people who boast in their spiritual attainments, it won't be long to see that they're actually pretty licentious as well. They love their freedom because they're of their previous law-keeping. Those antinomianism and legalism, frankly, often go hand in hand. They're just, we tend to hide one or the other. They boasted of their spiritual maturity based on their fleshly attainments and then pursued a life of fleshly indulgence and justified their indulgence on the basis of their spiritual maturity. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Just one more page over. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you understand you've been saved by God, that he has seized you, you will work it out with fear and trembling. Now, recognize this. Given this verse, if a person gives up pursuing Christ's likeness, what does that mean? If a person stops pressing on, in light of chapter 2 verse 12 what does that mean it means god was not at work in them if a person stops pressing on it's because god was not at work in them it was just fleshly it was just discipline it was just routine it was just culture it wasn't god It was just the flesh. And this is why he also gives the Philippians this assurance in 1.6. For I'm confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. When it is God at work in a person, he will perfect it. And so if a person veers off the path, they start coasting. What does that tell them? It wasn't God. It wasn't God. It was just them. Truly mature Christians never turn around and go back. They're not like Lot's wife who turned around and because of her love of this world and became a pillar of salt. Genuine believers keep living in obedience to the holy conduct that they'd already been living. And this is what Paul means by the standard we have attained. Many Christians don't digress. Sorry, mature Christians don't digress They progress until the race is finished. They keep pressing on. And so they go to, they read their Bibles. They go to community group. They do every single thing that they can because one thing they live for. They want to grow spiritually. They don't want anything to get in that way, in their way of that one thing. One thing they live for. And therefore everything else pales. 
Because it's God at work in them, compelling them to press on. At 7 p.m. on October 20th, 1968, a few thousand spectators remained in the Mexico City Olympic Stadium. It happened to be cool and dark. The last of the marathon runners, all of them exhausted, were being carried off on stretchers or to first aid stations. More than an hour earlier, Mama Wolda of Ethiopia, looking as fresh as he did when he started the race, crossed the finish line, the winner of the 26-mile, 385-yard event. And so as the remaining spectators prepared to leave and go to their homes or hotels, they heard the sound of sirens and police whistles. And all eyes turned towards the gate. A lone figure wearing the number 36 on his chest and the colors of Tanzania entered the stadium. His name was John Stephen Akwari. And he was the last man to finish the marathon. He had fallen during the race and had injured his knee and ankle. And now with his leg bloodied and bandaged, he grimaced each hobbling step around the 400 meter track. And when the spectators saw this, they all rose and they applauded him. And then after crossing the finish line, Akwari slowly walked off the field and then a, a, a reporter confronted him and asked him, this is the question that was on everyone's mind, why did you continue the race after you were so badly injured? He replied, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Brothers and sisters, let's finish the race. Father, we need grace to press on. We need grace because we realize there's nothing we can do in the flesh that would make any difference. But we recognize that as you work within us, we will press on. And so I pray that you would make the miracle of your grace clear in our lives. That we would realize it is your work. You are at work within us, both as individuals as well as a church body. That it's you who are compelling us towards Christ-likeness. And that our progress would be evident. Not because we're trying to prove anything to anybody, but because you are truly at work in our hearts. And Lord, I'd ask that you would be merciful If there is anyone in this room who has thought that they have been running the race in your grace, but it has just been merely flesh, it has been merely discipline, it has been merely personal choice, that you would open their eyes to see it. You would recognize, help them to see that they need you to do work in them. They need to be born again of the Spirit. So that they might know true grace. That they might know the freedom that comes from sin. Truly. They would no longer 
do anything out of mere discipline. But because they're compelled by a love of their Savior and therefore want to be like their Savior and want others to be like their Savior as well. Do this work in our hearts, Christ. We ask this in your name.